We're studying the book of Revelation on Sunday morning. We've made our way to, to chapter 13. And really the, the purpose uh, that we have is to find out what Revelation chapter 13 is, is really all about. And this is absolutely an incredible chapter because what it does is it introduces to us a man who I believe is alive on this planet right now. I mean, this is just an amazing period of time to be alive. We are alive right now at the same time that the beast that you see in Revelation chapter 13 is alive. Now, we, he has not yet been revealed for who he actually is, but he is alive right now on this planet based on everything that we see that is fulfilled in, in biblical prophecy. And our purpose, just as it's been all since we, we, we began the, the study of the book of Revelation, is to find out what Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and right on through the end of the chapter, what this is all about. But there are so many things that are, that are in Revelation chapter 13 that to really understand what's going on in this chapter, what we've done is we've just kind of backed away a, a little bit and we've opened up what the scripture has to say in other places about this beast or the antichrist that is soon going to be revealed on this planet and and by doing so what what our purpose is is try to to try to get a, a comprehensive understanding of the person and work of this this antichrist and so we last week we we referred to a lot of things here in in revelation chapter 13 but we began to look at some other places that, that shed an incredible amount of light on chapter 13, and we're going to continue doing that this morning. But we looked last week, first of all, at his rise to power. We saw this back in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation in verse 2. And what we began to find out is when he comes on the scene and he takes world domination, it's not going to be because of his great army. It's not going to be because of threats. It's not going to be because of domination in any way. It's going to be because of his diplomacy this dude is going to come on the scene and i'm telling you he is going to be this is not a figure of speech he's going to be the smoothest guy that ever hit this planet in all of the history of mankind there will not have be a smoother guy than this one that we're talking about who rises to power shortly after the church of jesus christ has been removed from this planet and this planet begins a period of time called biblically the period of tribulation, a seven-year period of time that Jesus said there's never been a time like it before it. There'll never be a time like it after it. And he will come on the scene. And we began looking at his genius, and we saw the fact that he is an intellectual genius, an oratorical genius, a political genius, a commercial genius, a military genius. And what is so scary is he'll also be a religious Genius, And we began to see that as we work our way through the Word of God, that other than the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nobody who receives the amount of information or is given the, the billing that this one is given. We looked at his names and titles last week, and we saw, and we looked at, at over 30 different titles in 30 different places where this one is re referred to. And then we looked at his place in Satan's counterfeit Trinity, and we won't go into all of that again, but it has everything to do with chapter 12 and how that relates to the beast that we see in the first 10 verses of chapter 13, and then the beast that we're going to see in the remainder 
of the chapter. But this morning, what I want you to see is I want you to see his connection to the city and tower of Babel. His connection and his, of course, being the Antichrist, his connection to the city and tower of Babel. And I'd like to ask you to turn back with me, if you would, to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. And I would imagine that every person in this room has, at one time in your life, at least received some kind of information about the Tower of Babel and what was going on back there and, and what is just really very, very sad and what's really very scary is that for most Christians today, all it is is really just a cute little Bible story that's tucked away back there. And it, it's kind of a cool one, though, because, you know, when you're working the flannel graph and, you know, with the little kids, you know, this is, it makes for some great art, you know, up there. And you can kind of go off on the thing. And, you know, it, it's one of those kind of deals. But, folks, now, I want you to listen very, very carefully to this. You must make sure that you understand that understanding what is going on back here in Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel is the key to understanding and being able to identify Satan as he has worked all down through the centuries and is working today and will work through the Antichrist during the tribulation period. Now, I know that that sounds like a monumental statement, you know, this little kid's story of the Tower of Babel having that kind of implications. But it is true. If you're going to understand the working of Satan through the centuries, if you're going to understand where he is today, if you're going to understand where he's going, you're going to need to make sure that you understand these two very key chapters. I want you to listen. Something was going on on this planet way back 2,000 years before the birth of Christ that's going to be a whole lot like what's going to be taking place in the next several years on this planet 2,000 years after the birth of Christ. So we've got 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. There's a major gig going on back here at Babel. And 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, it's all going to happen again. It's all going it, to be taking place again. And there's a principle that you need to understand. Uh, the folks that have been around our church for, for some time now, you know this principle. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 15 says this. That which has been is now, and that which is to be has already been. Now, if you're hearing that for the first time, that can be just a little bit confusing, but what God is trying to let you know there is that if you're going to understand where you are, you've got to understand where you've been. If you're going to understand where you're going, you've got to understand where you've been because everything that is going to happen has already happened. God has let you know about what the future is going to hold by showing you the record of it in history. And folks, there was something that was going on back at the Tower of Babel that would forever change the course and direction of human history. And the truth is, and relating this back to Revelation chapter 13, if you don't understand what was going on in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, you'll never really understand what's going on in Revelation chapter 13 because, again, it's all coming 
to that, that same thing that was happening here is going to happen through the Antichrist. And you're never going to understand what's happening all around us and what is called Christianity on this planet unless you understand what was going on here. Because you see, what is going to be taking place on this planet during the tribulation period when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he is going to have a religious system that he is going to use to unify this world and it is the same exact religious system that we're going to see here this morning in Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11. And folks, listen, all down through the centuries, this religious system has been operating and Satan has done just a, an absolutely incredibly marvelous job of masquerading that system and he has been able to use this very system to damn the souls of millions and millions and millions of people to hell and listen I'm not talking about atheists I'm not talking about agnostics I'm talking about some of the most religious people who have ever been on the face of this earth people who believed in the virgin birth of Christ people who believed in the deity of Christ people who believed in the death burial and resurrection of Christ people who thought they were a part of the church that Christ was building on this planet and in reality though they didn't understand it in the midst of all of that religion what they did not see until they died and opened their eyes in eternity was that they had embraced the very system that we're seeing here this morning in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 at the Tower of Babel and what is just it's almost breathtaking to me folks is that there are one billion people this morning in 1998 one billion out of the six billion people who are living on this planet right now one billion of them are clinging tenaciously to the religious system that we see here that is called the Tower of Babel and they don't understand that that's the religion that they've embraced because the religion that they've embraced goes by the name of Christianity and it is so incredibly difficult to be able to get someone to be able to hear that the Christianity that they've embraced is not the Christianity of the Bible but the Christianity of the Tower of Babel religion and folks listen unless something takes place people that live right here in Tuscarawas County and all over the world unless we can begin to do something to love these people to the place to where we get a voice in their life they will draw their last breath and believing all of the right stuff about Christ are gonna die and go to hell and what is just so scary and not just that but what we see going on right now in the name of Christianity is all kind of religious leaders who are now joining their hands to this system 
that Revelation chapter 17 and 18 calls the mother of harlots. So, now, now listen, if you're, if you're new to the Bible and, and to this church, some of the stuff that I've just said is probably like, what in the world is this dude even talking about here? I, I, what I'm trying to do this morning is I'm trying to tell you where we're going in this so that when we get into the midst of the details, you understand what, what we're actually going to get to here, and so you can begin to see this thing. I'm just foreshadowing where the message is going this morning so that you can not get lost in all of the details, but this is some incredibly important stuff that we're going to be talking about. Now, I, I can just tell you right from the get-go, folks, that if you're coming to a church and, and you wanted a nice little sermon and something to, to make you feel good, I... I I understand that that's where most of us are, but that's probably not what's going to happen for you today. Some of this is going to be just a, a little bit technical. Some of it may blow your hair back just a, a little bit. But you know what? I, I've, I've, got this, I've got this dilemma. God gave us his book. And what he tells people like me is that I'm to feed the flock of God which is among you that he purchased, listen, that he purchased with his own blood and I have an obligation before God to speak the truth of this book and I can just tell you in the day that we're living in people don't want the truth of this book they do want to come to church and have somebody make them feel good and and pat everybody on the head and and say you know we're, we're all in this together and isn't it wonderful and yeah 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 and I'd love to to make you feel good today but it ain't gonna happen <laughs> I really, I really would. And some of you, you're not going to like what you hear. You're not going to like what you see. But again, I'm obligated before God, and willingly so, to give his truth the way that he lays it out in this book. All right, well, hey, thanks. I'm glad all five of you want to stick around for this. All right, it all really begins all the way back here in Genesis chapter 10, and 11 with a key tool in the hand of Satan a guy by the name of Nimrod we meet him in chapter 10 and verse 8 and I would encourage you this morning to to get as much down as you can possibly get so that you can check these things out on your own later but we meet him in chapter 10 and verse 8 in the midst of a genealogy and the first thing that you want to note about him is is just the simple fact that as you're cruising through this this genealogy I mean you can see it there in chapter 10 and what you can see here is God is just listing right from verse 1 he's just listing one name right after another but then you come to Nimrod in verse 8 and all of a sudden God stops the listing of the names to give you a commentary on this guy it's like let me tell you about something about him right here. You, you know what I'm saying? You see it there? You just cruise along and bam, here it is. And what's interesting is over in 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 10, it's the same gig going on. Got the same genealogy that, that's clicking along and all of a sudden you come to Nimrod, bam, it goes into the same exact commentary. And folks, now listen, the point is this. God's trying to get our attention when you see this guy Nimrod there's something that he's wanting us to understand about this guy. And what is it? Well, let's read the little commentary and see. And as we do, I want you to be listening for a, a repeated adjective that God uses to describe Nimrod. Look at verse 8. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. 
He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, I think it's obvious that whoever this dude Nimrod is, he's one way of a mighty dude, right? In fact, there's four times in the Bible that it uses the name Nimrod, and there are four times that the word mighty is used in connection to Nimrod. And three of them are right here, and the other one is, like I mentioned, over in First Chronicles chapter 1. And in verse 10 in that genealogy, listen to it. First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 10 says, And Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be mighty upon the earth. So what is it that God's trying to get us to see? Well, if you were to cross-reference this thing, you wouldn't even have to get past the first mention of the word mighty in the Bible to get a major clue. And it's in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4. Why don't you just cruise back there? You're this close. The first mention in the Bible of the word mighty is in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4, and it's used in reference to the giants that were produced as a result of the sons of God, which are the the fallen demons that, that went with Lucifer in his fall. And this word is used in reference to the giants that were produced as the result of the sons of God, cohabitating with the daughters of men. And in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4, it says the same, that's these giants, became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Okay, now now listen to it again. They became mighty men. Now go back over to chapter 10 and verse 8 again. And look at what it says, Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one. So, so the connection there is, is definitely worth noting. Became mighty men. Began to be a mighty one. And then you couple that together with his ancestry. Now, well, I don't want to wear you out, but back in chapter 6 again. Oh, no, hold up. Verse 6 of chapter 10. That's where you are. Verse 6. You'll notice here that his grandfather is Ham. And Ham, of course, is is one of the three sons of Noah, and specifically the one upon whom came the curse. You'll remember that when they came off of the boat, there was an incident that took place there, and a curse was placed upon Ham. Okay, and that's his ancestry. So right from the very start here, we're we're seeing that whoever this dude Nimrod is, He's not connected with a, a real popular group of people in the Word of God, and things only get worse when you find out the meaning of this guy's name. The name Nimrod means rebel or rebellion. And you see, when you begin to put all of these things together, it gives you a, a real insight into the epithet that was used of him. And an epithet, of course, is for you junior high and high school young people. It's a phrase that's used to, to describe or to express some quality uh, uh, or an attribute. It's, it's a, a title that is given to someone. You see in the middle of verse 9, that it says, Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And evidently, this had become some sort of, of slogan. Look, look at verse 9 again. Wherefore it is said... You know what this is letting you know? That, that this, is, this is like a slogan. When, when people talked about Nimrod, they said, Oh, you know Nimrod? He's the mighty hunter 
before the Lord. And what you find out is he's a whole lot like those men of renown that we saw back in Genesis chapter 6. He's got even a slogan that's used of him. If I say to you men, uh, if I say the name Muhammad Ali, what do you say? The world heavyweight champion, you know? If I say Michael Jordan, you say the greatest basketball player that ever lived. You say uh, Nimrod, the, the longest preacher you, you ever heard, uh, whatever. I mean, it, it, there's a title that goes, Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And notice that phrase for just a second there. Now you've got to plug in all the things that we've already seen about this guy in order to understand what the epithet really means. Look, look at it again in verse 9. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And as you begin to trace the usage of the word before through the Old Testament, you find that not only does it mean in the sight of, but it also means against. And again, you see a similar phrase used back in Genesis chapter 6. And verse 11, it, it says, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. It was corrupt before God or against God. Also over in chapter 13, cruise over there if you would, Genesis chapter 13 and verse 13 where it says, But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. So the, the idea here in, in verse 9 of Genesis 10 that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord isn't that the, you know, the Lord looked out of heaven and, and, and simply saw, you know, here's Nimrod and he's a mighty hunter. No, God looked out of heaven and saw that he was a mighty hunter against God, against him. Which would lead you to ask, well, I mean, what was it that the dude hunted that, I mean, so set him against God? Well, obviously, by every indication that we have, we see that, that Nimrod was well-built, he was strong, uh, of intimidating stature, and, and no doubt he would have used his, his strengths uh, against the many wild animals that would have been in Shinar, and I'm sure the dude could do him some hunting, but what you need to understand is that Nimrod was hunting something more than animals, folks. And this is so key. Nimrod was hunting men. Men to become a part of his kingdom. The Jewish Encyclopedia says that Nimrod was he who made all the people rebellious against God. Nimrod wanted to set himself up as a king over a kingdom in rebellion against God. And look at verse 10 of chapter 10 again. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now, we've learned about the law of first mention in the Bible, the fact that God has, has so laid this book out that the first time a, a word or a concept is used in the Bible, its usage there defines its, its future scope. In other words, God shows you when he first uses a word or a concept, he shows you how this word is going to be connected all the way through the scripture. It's almost as if God says, now watch this word that I use right here because I'm going to let you in on a little secret. And in Genesis 10.10, 10, you find here the first 
time that the word kingdom is used in the Bible, the first time you see the word kingdom. Now, because we've studied the Word of God together in the last several years or so, we've, we've learned that the theme of the Bible is all about a kingdom, and specifically the Lord Jesus Christ coming to this earth and establishing His kingdom, sitting on His throne in Jerusalem, ruling over the sons of God, which is what the Bible calls every person who has come into a relationship with Him. And He rules over the sons of God on the earth from the same place where Lucifer once reigned on the earth from his throne, which Ezekiel 28:15 says that he lost because iniquity was found in him and he lost that throne and was displaced. But we talked about the fact, and we've seen this over and over, that Lucifer, who is, is now Satan, has never lost his desire to get that place back. He had a throne on the earth. God says that by the time that the whole story is, is complete, Jesus Christ is going to be sitting on a throne in the earth, on the earth, in the same exact location that that other throne used to be. And what you begin to find out is all of history is really nothing more than the story of God moving to put his son on that throne and Satan doing whatever he can possibly do to make sure that he doesn't get there so that he gets there himself. But what's interesting here is that the first time you see the word kingdom in the Bible, it's in reference to a king whose name means rebellion, who is seeking to establish a world empire. Now, if you know anything about where the Bible's going, you want to just make sure that you file that really clear in your mind. The first time a kingdom is found in the Bible, it's in reference to a king whose name means rebellion, who is seeking to establish a world empire. But not only is the first mention of kingdom in the Bible found in Genesis 10 and verse 10, Genesis 10.10 is also the first mention of the word battle or Babylon. And what's interesting is that from this point in the Bible, Babylon will always stand for that which is in opposition to God and his people. I mean, it's consistent all the way through. Babylon is always that which stands in opposition to God and his people, and all of this is laid out for you right here in Genesis chapter 10, and it's even expounded upon in, in chapter 11. We'll see that in just a second. And what we're going to see here in chapter 11 is that, that not only did Nimrod organize an imperial government over which he presided as king, but I want you to see here in chapter 11 that he also instituted a new and idolatrous worship. Now, I want to pick up chapter 11, which is really a, a commentary on, on the verses that we just covered from Genesis chapter 10. This is, chapter 11 is describing the development of the kingdom whose beginning was Babel in the land of Shinar. So you, you got that? Chapter 10 tells you that a kingdom was built Chapter 11 tells you how, and perhaps even more importantly, why. Okay, look in, verse, look in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 11. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to! 
Let us make brick and burn them truly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now there's several things that I want you to catch here. Did you notice who the main subject of the, the, the passage that we just read, who the main subject of the, the, the verses was? Look at it again in verse 8. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick. Verse 4, and they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. You know, who is this all about, y'all? It's all about us. It's all about man. I mean, where's God in, in anything in, in this kingdom? And you see, that's the whole point. Remember that this is the kingdom that is in opposition to God. This is the kingdom that is against God. And everything that you see here in this passage that we just read is in direct opposition to Him. From the place that they chose to dwell in verse 2, you remember that we've learned in our study together in the last several years, what we've learned is that every time that God makes a move in the Bible, what direction does He go in, y'all? He goes from east to west. Every single time, no matter where you slice it in the Bible, any time that you find God moving, He moves from east to west. And verse 2 lets you know that their journey starts in the east and moved east toward Shinar. And in rebellion to God's command, you'll remember back in, in Genesis chapter 9, in verse 1 and verse 7, when Noah's sons got off of the boat, the command to them was to be fruitful and to multiply and to replenish the whole earth to go and to scatter throughout the entire earth and to replenish the thing verse 2 says that this group of people under Nimrod they came to Shinar to dwell there and you see God's plan was for his name to be glorified over the whole earth and here they are dwelling in Shinar, and look at the end of verse 4, Nimrod and those he hunted to be in his kingdom said, Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. You see, it's, they're afraid that they're going to have to fulfill the very thing that God wanted them to fulfill. We don't want to be scattered. We don't want to replenish the whole earth. We want to dwell right where we are, and we're not really concerned at all about the name of God. We're very interested in making a name for ourselves. And, and notice in verse 3, when they get to Shinar and begin to build, that they use man-made materials as opposed to what God made. See, stones are God-made. Bricks are man-made. I, I mean, no matter, what you, no matter what you touch here in this chapter, everything is in just total opposition to God. And we've already seen this morning that Nimrod's desire was to establish a world empire. And because he was being uh, nothing more really than a, than a, a puppet being fueled by Satan himself, he knew that in order to really establish an empire in this world, he knew that he was going to have to unify the people 
both commercially and religiously. And that's what the beginning of verse 4 is all about. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower. And the city is the commercial symbol. The tower, as we'll see in, in, in just a couple of minutes, is the religious symbol. And, and evidently, folks, Nimrod's campaign was highly successful. And he definitely had the support of the people. The people are all into this thing. I mean, there is, there is incredible unity down there in Shinar, down there in Babel. I mean, he's got them. Let us make us a city and a tower and let us you, you, you see the unification that's, that's going on there and no doubt Nimrod's father the devil had learned that since the fall of man human nature was bent just a whole lot like his own and that man was a sucker for being like God and having a name for himself and wanting to exalt himself to the place of God. Do you remember, folks? That was what led to Satan's fall in the first place. He said, I will be like the Most High. I want to be like God. I will ascend into heaven. It's a whole lot like what this tower we're seeing here is doing. It's ascending into heaven. I will exalt my throne. And do you remember back in, in Genesis chapter 3 that when he came to Eve, do you remember what it was that led to her fall? Satan appealed to her desire to be godlike and to know what God knows. You remember that? He, he says, hey, listen, Eve, God knows that when you do this, you're going to know what he knows. You're going to be like him. Eve, if you'll do this, you'll be somebody, baby. I mean, you're going you're gonna to have a name when you do this. And you see, Satan's just doing it all over again here. He found out that that's what led to his fall. He found out, I can take this whole human race and get them through the same thing that caused me to fall. I can get them to fall. And folks, it, here it comes again. Doing the same exact thing right here through Nimrod. I, I mean, folks, he has got... This group of people to where, I mean, they are just dialed in. They, they, they want this name. They're for it. They're willing to sacrifice. I mean, they, they just totally bought into it, just like Satan did, just like Eve did. And there's perfect unity. Let us build us a city and a tower so we can build us a name. And they're all unified. And listen, there's one government. There's one religion. And there's one dictator. And folks, again, it's just like what it's going to be during the tribulation period. It's the fulfillment of that Ecclesiastes 3.15 principle that we were talking about earlier. That which is to be has already been. But the construction of this tower under, under Nimrod's leadership, it marks for us the beginning of Satan's first organized counterfeit religion. Now, there have been counterfeit religions since the time of, of Cain. What we're talking about is going on here in Genesis chapter 11 is Satan's first organized counterfeit religion. And as we're about to see, the, the, the tower 
This Tower of Babel is the source from which every other false religion in the world, in one way or another, has originated. You say, I, I mean, I don't get it. How in the world could, from this one counterfeit religion, in this one place, in, in, in this one time, how in the world could it be the source of every false system that the world has ever known from the time of Nimrod at the Tower of Babel all the way to the second coming of Christ? How in the world could that be? And I want you to, to make sure that, you, that you, you're getting the pieces here. Okay, now I, I, what we've had to do this morning is we've had to get a little bit technical here and let you see what's really going on here so that you can see what's about ready to happen. But make sure you got the picture. You've got the king of rebellion here. He establishes a kingdom in opposition to God. He's got his own government. He has his own system of religion. And things are moving upward and forward, up into the heavens. And folks, I'll tell you what, they're probably a whole lot more sophisticated, what's going on here, than any of us could probably ever imagine. Because what happens in verse 5, God's had enough. And watch what happens here. It says, And the Lord came down to the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they all have one language, and this they begin to do. Now watch this. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do, which will give you just some kind of an idea of the capabilities of the human mind. And if man has, has put a man on the moon since that time, you know what? It's hard to say what might have actually been going on back here in the Tower of Babel because whatever it was, whatever was happening in that tower was a whole lot more sophisticated than putting a man on the moon because God stepped in and interrupted that thing at the Tower of Babel. And I don't know if you're tracking with what I'm saying, but I'm telling you, something major was going on back here. And so God says in verse 7, Go to... Let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth. Is the very thing that they didn't want to have happen to them. Remember, this is the thing that prompted this whole thing uh, to begin with at the end of verse 4. So God confounds or he confuses their language and then scatters them or, or beams them all over the earth. And the end of verse 8 Obviously, they left off to build the city. But what is so important for you to see, and this is, man, this is the reason that we went into all of this. The Lord destroyed their ecumenical movement, this, this unification, this religious unification that's going on there. The Lord destroyed that by confusing their language. And he stopped them from continuing to build the, the representation of their false system of religion in the tower by scattering them all over the earth. But those very people, once he scattered them and he, he confused their language, those very people took with them the seeds of that false, idolatrous religion. And as they went, they planted them all over the world. And folks, that's why from that time to the present, what has happened is they have grown up into all kinds of various religions under all kinds of different names. But what you need to understand is that it's all really the exact same system. And that's why Revelation 17.5 calls Babylon, listen, the mother of harlots 
and of the abominations of the earth. And, and to help you understand just how all of that really fleshes out in history and, and what some of the characteristics of the religion of, of Babylon really were, there's one more thing about Nimrod that we need to talk about, and that's his wife. His wife. Now, the Bible doesn't, doesn't mention her specifically. The things that we know about her we learn from various ancient sources, but Nimrod's wife was a woman by the name of Semiramis, Semiramis I, and she was the high priestess of the Tower of Babel religion. And as the story goes, when Nimrod died, Semiramis began to claim that he was now the sun god. And now listen, that would become rather significant because in time, what was going to happen to this widowed woman by the name of Semiramis, this widowed woman is going to get pregnant. And what she does once she gets pregnant is she claims that she conceived by a sunbeam, having never known a man, which of course is a counterfeit of the virgin birth, because obviously Satan dialed Semiramis into the prophecy concerning the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that, it would, that he would be born of a virgin birth, and so she gives birth to a son, supposedly miraculously, and the one who is born is a child, a son, whose name was Tammuz, T-A-M-M-U-Z, Tammuz, who was supposedly Nimrod come back to life. And again, what you got here is a counterfeit of the resurrection. And what you find, folks, is way back in Babylon, thousands of years before the virgin birth of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, Satan has already fulfilled prophecies, as it were, in his own counterfeit system of religion. And in this system, not only was the child worshipped, but so was the mother. And folks, now listen, that's why no matter what ancient religion you study, from whatever part of the world you may choose, listen, they're all going to have as a part of their worship a mother and a child. And every time you find that mother, she's going to have a halo over her head. And every time you see that child, he's going to have a halo over his head. And listen, it all goes back to the Tower of Babel and the worship that was going on there because God scattered the people all over the earth. And you see, when they went, they took this religious form. And because God had confounded their language, the name is simply different in all the different places, but it all goes back to what was going on at the Tower of Babel. And in every case, she, the, the woman, the mother, is the deity of sexual love and fertility. And in China, she was Xing Mu, meaning Holy Mother. And when you see her, she's pictured with, with, with a child in her arms and rays of glory around her head. In ancient Germany, She's the virgin Hertha, pictured with child. In Syria, she was Ishtar. In India, she was Indrani, with child. In Ephesus, Ephesus, she was Diana, which Acts 19 and verse 27 says, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. In Egypt, she was Isis and her son Osiris. In Greece, she was Aphrodite, 
and her son Eros. In Phoenicia, the mother was known as Ashtart or Ashtar, and, and the son of, uh, son of Baal. And what you begin to see in the Old Testament is that numerous times through the Old Testament, the nation of Israel would fall into apostasy. And the Bible says that when they did, they, they worshipped Ashtaroth or Ashtoreth. It's the mother of the Tower of Babel religion and her son referred to as Baal or Balaam. And it's exactly what you see going on at the Tower of Babel that spread throughout the entire world. Now, now, now listen very carefully. Okay, we're going we're gonna to skip ahead in time now several thousand years. Now I've tried to show you what it was that was really going on back here at the Tower of Babel. And what happened when God confounded their language and scattered these people is they took this religious system from the Tower of Babel into every conceivable place on the earth. The reason that it's not all called Semiramis and Tammuz is because of the change of the language. Now listen, when Rome became the dominant world power just before the birth of Christ, what you need to understand, okay, now, now listen very, very carefully. And again, I know that what we just covered was very, very technical. It's all going to start coming, coming together for you if you listen very carefully. What you need to understand is that when Rome became the world power at just before the birth of Christ, the religion that Rome embraced was nothing other than the Tower of Babel religion. And in Rome, the Holy Mother was called Venus, from which we get our word venereal in reference to sexually transmitted disease, because remember, she's always the fertility god. She's always the god of love. And her son in Rome was called Jupiter. Sometimes he's referred to as Cupid. And, and listen. When you go back in history, and we, we've studied this together, but when you go back in history, or you, you see the, the movies that are, that are representative of that, that time in the early days of Christianity, and you see when Christians were being forced to bow and, and make sacrifices to the gods of pagan Rome or be tortured and killed, make sure that you understand that all of those, those gods of pagan Rome were nothing other than the gods from the Tower of Babel religion. And listen, that Roman emperor, make no mistake about it, that Roman emperor is the same kind of priest slash king in that religion in pagan Rome. He is just exactly what Nimrod was back at the, in his religion at the Tower of Babel. It's all the same exact deal. It's the same exact worship. It's all the same exact gods. It's just that they had different names because of God changing or confounding their language. So you see, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes along and he establishes his church, what we call Christianity, you've got to understand that that was an immediate threat to the empire, to the Roman Empire, because you, you see the, the Christians end up saying, no, Christ is our king. No, Christ is our great high priest. It's not Caesar. And if you go back and you check it out in, in Acts chapter 17 and you see the persecution that was going on back at the, the city of Thessalonica, listen, it was for that 
very reason. The Christians said that there is one king, that there is one Lord, and it's not Caesar. It's not the Roman emperor, and we're not bowing before him anymore. The true king is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He's our king. He is our high priest, and they would not worship their gods. And so what the Roman Empire begins to do is they begin to, to wipe out anybody who will not bow to the pagan gods and to the Roman emperor in Rome. And they're seeking to wipe out the Christian religion by seeking to wipe out anybody who claimed to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And folks, during the first and the second and the third, third centuries, this is what is happening in Christianity. They're, they're, they're trying to wipe out Christianity. And they're coming under incredible persecution. But, but it's unreal what's happening. The more that Satan tries to come against it, the more he tries to wipe them out, the more it begins to flourish, the more it begins to grow. As Tertullian wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And folks, I'm telling you, the believers during this time, they were just so unbelievable. I, I, I know. I'm sure they didn't think that they were anything special. I, I, I mean, they just understood who Christ was. They understood who they were. And once they received Him, the world ceased to have any pull on them. Unlike Christians of today. I want you to listen to the description of them from the early writers, writers of history. Listen to it. Speaking of these Christians during this time. But while they dwell in Greek or barbarian cities according as each man's lot has been cast, and follow the customs of the land and clothing and food and other matters of daily life, yet the condition of citizenship which they exhibit is wonderful and admittedly strange. They live in countries of their own, but simply as sojourners, enduring the lot of foreigners. They exist in the flesh but they live not after the flesh. They spend their existence upon earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, and in their own lives they surpass the laws. They love all men and are persecuted by all. And folks, listen. Those early believers in the first and second and third century had such an impact on their world because of the life that they lived, because they weren't tied into that same system. They obeyed all the laws. They did all of the right stuff. They were great citizens, but it was apparent to everybody they were living for a different kingdom than the one that was, they could see with their eyes. And they had such an impact that what began to happen is the pagan temples of the gods of Rome began to go out of business. And by the time you get to the end of the third century, the, the persecution upon Christians has so majorly intensified that it's to the point now that, that decrees are being passed to burn any Bible that anybody finds. It's to be burnt. Any place where Christians have found to, to gather to worship, the place was to be worshipped. And again, the more the Bibles they burned, the more places of worship they burned, the more Christians that they burned at the stake, the more this thing began to flourish. And you see, all the while, Christianity is this growing thing. Now listen, all the while it's flourishing, something's beginning to happen to the Roman Empire. It's beginning to crumble from the inside out. And all of a sudden, Satan has 
a major stroke of genius. What he decided is that he would totally change his strategy. What it was, folks, it was a major case of if I can't beat them, I'll join them. And now listen very carefully. Around 13, or 313 A.D., there's a young man by the name of Constantine who is in the battle of his life at a place that is called Milvian Bridge. You need to understand, and a lot of you, a lot of you studied this in, in, in Western civilization in college, and you got a, a real distorted view of what was really going on there. But here it is, Roman Empire is crumbling from within. The Battle of Milvian Bridge is going to decide who the next Roman emperor is actually going to be. And so here it is, Constantine's out there, and it's, it's, it's the day, buddy. He walks out of his tent one morning, and all of a sudden... Now, this is according to his story. He claims that he sees a cross in the sky. And he hears a voice just about that time. And the voice says, By this sign thou shalt conquer. Now, he may have had some kind of experience, but I can tell you this, based on the Word of God, that the experience that he had was nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 18 and verse 36, it says that the servants in our Lord's kingdom do not fight. And God never violates his word, much less does he ever come and give anybody some weirded out vision that they could uh, turn and twist to become some kind of a, a conversion experience. But that's exactly what happens with Constantine. Constantine sees this cross and he hears this voice, and he equates all of this, this mystical, non-biblical mumbo-jumbo with, with being a Christian. I must be a Christian now. And so what he does, now you need to understand this, he, he claims to be a Christian, but he continues as the Roman emperor, he continues to be the, the head of the pagan priesthood, and yet at the same time calling himself, listen to this title, listen to it real carefully, he calls himself the vicar of Christ on the earth. And he is the first one in history to use that title. And what he, you can go back and study it, and we have done this as a church together, but what he does is he sets out to create this big ecumenical thing that's, that's going on. You see, he, he becomes a Christian and he says, you know what? The way to pull this empire back together I can't, I can't do it by snuffing out Christianity. I'll use Christianity as the thing to solidify this empire again. And so what he begins to do is he gives whoever will be baptized, which is not what the Bible teaches is how a person becomes a Christian in the first place. But he says, if you'll get baptized, I'll give you 20 pieces of silver and a new baptismal robe, a new set of clothes, and buddy... All over the empire, man, people are being baptized to become a Christian. And again, folks, let me, let me reiterate it. The Bible never one time ever teaches that the way that a person becomes a Christian is by being baptized. But now, all these people are supposedly embracing Christianity. But you see, there's all kinds of these divisions going on. And he knows that's not going to be helpful for his little kingdom that he's trying to build. And so 
he remembers what, what Jesus said back in John 17. Yeah, you know, Jesus prayed back there that we'd all be one. And so what he does is he comes before all of the pastors and he says, I know, guys, you've been having it tough out there, so I want you to know something. We're going to begin to pay you from the state. You, you guys have had it rough. And so we're going to begin to pay you. And you won't have to worry about your, your salary anymore because, you know, we are now, the Roman Empire has become Christian you know and, and fellas listen it's time that we set aside all of our petty little doctrines and we come together in unity because Jesus prayed that we'd all be one and fellas for our Lord's sake let's answer his prayer see that's the answer to the world's problems not to mention the answer to keeping Rome as the dominant world power and him as the head the answer was unity. And again, I, I, I beg you to go back in history and, and check that thing out. Listen, Constantine is not interested in any way, shape, or form with doctrine or what the Bible says. He is, he's interested in one thing, in unity, so that he can do something with that empire, the, the, the Roman Empire. And, and, and you know what's happening as he's doing all of this, folks? It's found for you in, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. In the Pergamos church period, what is happening here is the church has married pagan Rome. And you know what has happened? Pagan Rome has paganized Christianity, or you could look at it from the other side. Christianity has Christianized pagan Rome. But listen... What you need to understand is what Rome was embracing and what, Christ, what was happening in Christianity. It has nothing, nothing to do with this book, and it had everything to do with what was going on back at the Tower of Babel. You remember back at the Tower of Babel what the religion was? It was all about a holy mother who gives birth to a holy child, and they both got that little halo thing that they're working. And you know what happens? Overnight, all throughout the Roman Empire where they've had these, these statues of this holy mother and this child which was Venus and Jupiter or Cupid and overnight folks what, what happened is the mother God and child from the Tower of Babel all of a sudden this becomes a statue to the holy mother Mary and to the holy child, Jesus, it's the same exact statue. Yesterday, it was Venus and Jupiter. But now we're Christian, you know, because we got baptized. And now, all of a sudden, now we're bowing before this holy mother and this child because this is Holy Mary, the mother of God, the holy child. And all of a sudden, the winter festival that they held in Rome in honor to the birth of the sun god whose birthday, listen, was on December 25th. All of a sudden, this becomes, well, you know, I mean, Jesus had to be born sometime and, you know, we've kind of gotten accustomed to this thing in our culture with, with the parades and the mistletoe and bringing the tree in and it was all there in pagan Rome. It was all there because it went back to the Tower of Babel. 
And now we're Christian, though. But so now this is this is all this is all about the birth of Christ and, and the spring festival that was held in pagan Rome to celebrate the resurrection of Tammuz from the Tower of Babel and, and his his mother Ashtart or Ishtar pronounced Easter. All of a sudden, it becomes the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. Historian Will Durant said at this time that paganism passed like maternal blood into the new religion and captive Rome captured her conqueror. The world converted Christianity. And folks, listen. In one sweeping move, all of a sudden, the whole structure of pagan Rome with its Tower of Babel priest king, emperor, and all of this, th this thing, all of a sudden, all of this whole thing became quote-unquote Christian. And I want you to listen to it. The pagan Roman emperor becomes the pope. The pagan Roman senate becomes the college of cardinals. The pagan Roman imperial governor become the archbishops. The Roman, pagan Roman provincial governors become the bishops, and the pagan Roman civitas become the priest. And the Vestal Virgins, guess who they become? They become the nuns. And before you know it, Christianity, or this new paganized form of it, became the official state religion and was soon called Roman Catholicism. And that's why no matter where you go in this world, whether it be South America, North America, Australia, or anywhere you go, every Catholic on the face of this earth is going to be called a Roman Catholic. Because it all goes back to what happened in, with Constantine, which all goes back to what was taking place at the Tower of Babel and the, the city and the, the tower was being built there. The word Catholic means universal Christianity. And, and I want to just, just, just stop for just a second here. And, and I want to just say something. We, we take, a, we, we take a, a, a blow many, many times in our community as the people that hate Catholics. And I want you to listen to me this morning. There could be nothing that would be further from the truth than that statement. This is a group of people in this room. This is a pastor that loves Catholics. And if you're here this morning and you're a Roman Catholic, listen, I'm not saying this because I'm trying to be offensive to you. I, the last thing in the world I want to do is have you come to church and tick you off. But now listen, I, I would risk ticking you off if you could come in here today and find out that the Roman Catholicism is nothing more than the Christianized form of the Tower of Babel religion. And nobody around here, nobody around here hates any Catholics. I'll, listen, if you're a Roman Catholic here this morning and you've got questions about this, I promise you, I'll wipe my entire schedule clean this afternoon. I'll spend all afternoon with you trying to, to show you from the Word of God what true Christianity is. 
please do not do not misrepresent what what this this whole thing is about what we're trying to show you here is where the whole the whole thing of where Satan has been moving and operating and where it's going to go during the tribulation period we're trying to show you from the the Bible what 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 happened with all of this thing but now the Roman Empire it's Christian and you, you remember what what happened when it was when it was pagan Rome and you wouldn't worship the way that that they told you to worship you remember what they did they would torture you and kill you if you wouldn't worship the way that they, they said well not much not much changed in the Roman Empire after this it started, again, with Constantine offering anyone who would quote-unquote convert to Christianity, he would give them 20 pieces of gold. Fifty years later, listen, every Roman citizen was required by law under sentence of death to be a Roman Catholic. Now, now listen, you know what? You can build a pretty big church that way. And in 300 A.D., the Edict of the Emperor's Gratian, Valentinian II, and Theodosius I was passed, and it said this, We order those who follow this doctrine to receive the title of Catholic Christians, but others we judge to be mad and raving. Nor are there assemblies to receive the name of churches. They are to be punished not only by divine retribution, but also by our own measures. In other words, because God gives these heretics who try to stick with what the Bible says and the form of sound words and doctrine and the faith that was once delivered to the saints. I mean, now listen, before God blasts them for such a terrible thing as that and, and something as, as disunifying to the universal Christianity as that, before God does his thing in judging those people, we're going to do ours. And you remember what all of the the, the, the unbelieving uh, the, the, uh, people uh, from Rome did in torturing the, 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 the people, the Christians during that time. I mean, we could go through and we won't, I won't drag you through it again. But the atrocities that those unbelievers were meeting out on people who held to what this book said was just absolutely unbelievable in pagan Rome. But listen to this. Will Durant writes, Compared with the persecution of heresy by the Roman Catholic Church, the persecution of Christianity by pagan Rome was a mild and humane procedure. Roman Catholic historian Peter de Rosa admits that Catholicism became the most persecuting faith the world has ever seen. Pope Innocent III murdered far more Christians in one afternoon than any Roman emperor did in his entire reign. And folks, that system has come down all through the centuries. And now listen, and we're going to start wrapping this up now. But right now, on this planet, the Roman Catholic Church is in the midst of a metamorphosis that's described for you in Job chapter 41. In Job chapter 41, what it says, and you don't need to turn there, but what it says is that Satan changes the face, or the doors of his face, and the faces of his garments. In other words, he changes his clothes to become whatever he needs to become to do what it is that he needs to do. And, and right now, what's beginning to happen, in fact, it, 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 just about two weeks or so ago, 
the Pope is beginning to come out with some statements saying, you know, we're, we're looking into our, our past and we're looking into some of the, the atrocities that our church meted out on, on, on people and, and we're, we're looking into to all of these things and, and they're beginning to, to have this little thing that's going on, this little resurgence of, of people that are starting to find out that, you know, there's a Bible out there and, and this kind of thing. And the language that they're beginning to use is is beginning to sound a, a whole lot like the language that we use. It's just that they have different definitions to their terms. And, and you know what's getting ready to happen, y'all? Now listen. Do you remember what began to take place in the 16th and 17th centuries? What we call the Reformation, where men inside the Roman Catholic Church were saying, this thing needs to be reformed. It needs to be reformed. This is the atrocities and all of the, the yuck that's in this system. It, it, this needs to a, a reformation. And the Roman Catholic Church wasn't about to reform. And it didn't need to reform because it's, it's never been Christian. It's always been pagan. It's always been the Tower of Babel. And again, I'm not saying that to, to tick you off. It didn't need a reformation. It needed to die and it needed to be born again is what it needed. But you see, these guys are calling for reformation because it wouldn't reform. They go out and they begin to start their own church. And this is where you find the, the Presbyterian church begins and the Church of England begins and the Lutheran church begins and all of these, these different churches begin because they're calling for reformation. And you see, right now, Roman Catholic Church is looking like it's reforming. And you know what's getting ready to happen? Is all of the ones that were calling for reformation that went out to start their own thing, in just a little while, y'all, they're going to say, you know what? Our whole thing started with the call for reformation. What are we doing out here? Mama has reformed. And everybody's going to come back. And you know what? There's going to be unification on, on th this planet. And, and again now, now listen to this. and Don't miss this. I alluded to this er earlier. What you've got to understand as a Christian in 1998 is that when the Antichrist comes on the scene during the tribulation period and he unites the whole world religiously and politically and economically, it's all the very same thing that Satan did under Nimrod in the city and the tower of Babel. It's all the same exact thing that Satan did under Constantine in the, in the fourth century as he mixed the, the paganism of Rome with the church of Jesus Christ to come up with a pagan system of religion that goes by the name of Christian and through the centuries, as we talked about earlier, has damned millions and millions and millions of people to hell. And what Revelation chapter 13 verses 14 and 15 describe as the religion of the Antichrist is the same emperor worship as in the days of Caesar and the death penalty for anybody who refuses to comply. And Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 says that all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Nimrod, the Antichrist, 
They're all going to worship Him. And all the denominations are come together. And all the walls are going to come down. And you know what's going to happen? The same exact thing that happened under Constantine. It's all going to happen again. And something that you can't miss, folks, is the Antichrist, which Revelation 13 defines as the beast. When you see the beast in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, now listen, when you see the beast in chapter 17 and 18, and we're going to be getting there, but when you see him in those chapters, he has a woman riding on his back. And that woman, without any shadow of a doubt, by the context there, is that one world religion. And Revelation 17 and 18 defines the woman as a city, a city that sits on seven hills that rules over the kingdoms of the earth, who has committed fornication with the kings of the earth and is drunk with the blood of the martyrs. And folks, listen. Of the 500,000 cities of the world that can be descriptive of only one. And that city is Rome and particularly Vatican City. The one world religion of the Antichrist is the woman of Revelation 17 and 18. And I know that it's hard to hear this, but it is the Roman Catholic Church. And what is so sad is that most Christians in the world today are just totally, absolutely clueless about how this whole thing shakes down. And we've got a whole world of Christianity that views the whole Tower of Babel thing as some archaic piece of history that really doesn't have any bearing whatsoever on anything that's going on today. And they really don't understand how that what was going on back at the Tower of Babel is continuing on today. Do you realize, folks, the Tower of Babel as a city may have stopped, but the Tower of Babel as a religion, that thing is still being built. And the only thing that has ever changed is its location and its outward form, but that thing has never ceased being built. And that's why right now, all over this country and all over the world, the vast majority of people who claim to be born again think that the answer to the world's problems is for us to just, within the realm of Christendom, it is for us to just drop any of these divisive doctrines that would, would, would cause us to be disunified with anybody else that calls themselves a Christian. What this world really needs is for there to be religious unity. And you know, when we all come together as one, then the world is finally going to listen to what we say. And that's what we hear everywhere you go in Christianity right now. The only problem is, folks, that in order to come together in unity, you've got to drop so many doctrines, but that by the time you've dropped them all, the message that we have to proclaim to the world doesn't resemble in any way, shape, or form the message of the gospel that was once delivered to the saints. And that's what we have been commanded to hold fast. And, and folks... The people that are joining hands with the Babylonian harlot and crawling into her bed, they're no longer the, the liberals who make up the, the National Council of Churches. It's no longer the liberals who make up the World Council of Churches. 
It's some of the most popular and well-respected, most listened to, fundamental religious leaders of our time. And they're joining hands and they're signing documents to unite evangelicals together with people who don't preach the same gospel and don't preach the same Jesus that is preached in this book. And they're agreeing that we won't evangelize them because, you know, we really are the same after all. And they're all excited about how, how this is such a, a great period of, of time in history. And they, they're talking about the fact that this is one of the most historic moments in the history of the church. And folks, that part, they got right. This is the most historic period of time in the history of the church, but not for good. I don't know about you, but the whole thing smells a whole lot like what God said shook down back at the Tower of Babel in 2000 B.C. I don't know about you, but it, it smells a whole lot like what happened in 325 A.D. under Constantine. I don't know about you, but it smells like the perfume of the great religious horror. You smell it? It, it has a very distinct odor to it, folks. We've got to make sure that we understand we ain't joining hands with that system that goes back to the Tower of Babel. And listen, we're not mad at the people who are being sucked into this. We're grieved for them. We're, we're mad at the devil, buddy. We're mad at our, ourselves for being so clueless that we've let all of this, this take place without being like our brothers in centuries gone by who would stand up at the very outset of these things and be saying, Hey, whoa! Hey, whoa! No, no, no! Don't you understand that you're moving into the realm of paganism? And folks, listen. We have got to find a way. We have got to find a way in these last days to be able to understand the truths that we've talked about today without becoming mean-spirited. And finding a way to rub shoulders with these one billion people that are trapped in that system who this morning think they're okay because they prayed the rosary, because they burned the candles, because there was holy water, because they participated in the mass. Listen, every bit of that, all that, that entire thing goes back to what was taking place at the Tower of Babel. And folks, listen, we're this close. I mean... It's just, it's just right there. The Antichrist is getting ready to pull this whole thing together in wide open territory. And here we are right now watching Christianity do... I mean, listen, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's not going to have much left to do because of fundamental... Christians, who I believe, most of which are going to be raptured off of this planet, are going to have set it up for the Antichrist so that when he comes, man, it just falls right into his hands. Now listen, if you're ever going to understand the beast in Revelation 13, you've got to understand the Tower of Babel thing. And I, again, I understand, man, this has been some technical stuff that we've cruised through this morning. 
But you'll see as we begin to work our way through chapter 13 that if you don't have this as a backdrop, you'll never really fully understand what we're going to see that's going to be taking place. And if you're here this morning, and, and I know, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that there has got to be some folks in here who are Catholic. And again, I want to I- I emphasize to you, the purpose of today is not to, to try to blast your religion. It's not to try to blast you or your parents or your grandparents. Listen. What we've tried to do is simply be true to what the Word of God says and let you identify that system that is presently at work and is going to be at work in the very near future in very troublous times that the Bible calls the tribulation. And this morning, what the Lord Jesus Christ wants to do for you is He wants to save you apart from any church, including this one, And apart from anything that you eat, apart from anything that you drink, apart from anything that you do, but coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone and saying, I realize that I am a sinner and all of the religion in the world can't do anything about my sin. I realize that you came to this earth as God in human flesh to die on the cross to take my sin, and I trust that. And that alone as my only way of having my sin removed. I trust you alone. And listen, no matter who you are, no matter what your past, no matter what your religion, when you call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says you will be saved. And that can happen for you this morning, and it is our prayer that you'll open your heart today to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to pray, and we're going to have just a few words of, of closing, but as we conclude this morning, our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room. If you have questions about anything that you've heard today, or what it means to, to become a Christian, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, these men are here. We'll have somebody that will take a Bible, take you to a private room, let you ask whatever questions. They'll, they'll show you from the Word of God how today you can receive the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. And it's our prayer that you'll do that. Let's pray together. And now, Lord, I pray that you would you would take all of this and and I realized going into this this morning that this was going to be a lot of information and a lot of things to piece together. I realized going into it that we risk being misunderstood, misrepresented in all of this. But Lord, I I pray that you right now would transcend all of that. And I pray that the, the clear, simple gospel would find entrance into the heart and mind of people in this room that have never received the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe some folks came in that are not a part of the system that we talked about. Maybe they're not a part of any system. Maybe they don't even doubt that there is any God or any true faith. And Lord, I pray you'd take the things that we've seen this morning.
that so clearly identify everything that we have seen in the last at least 4,000 years of human history. And I pray that you'd use these things to cause these people to be aware that this is your book, your truth, that you are the one true God, and that there is only one true faith, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. So, Lord, I do pray for the salvation of souls today. I pray that you would help us as you taught us in 2 Corinthians 11. Help us to remain in these last days spiritual virgins. Keep us from the fornication adultery of the mother of harlots help us not to be found dating her holding hands with her or crawling into her bed pray that you would protect us as a church you've been very gracious to us in, in allowing us the light to be able to see the things that we've seen and we recognize we are highly accountable with this understanding I pray that you would help us not to be mean spirited help us to very lovingly seek to reach the people who are trapped into a, a system that Satan is using to blind them to what true Christianity is really all about and I do pray you'd help us to reach many many Catholics in this area in the Philippines and in countries where that is the, the dominant religion in these last days. Lord, please help us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.